Amen. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Good morning. Woo, good to see you guys this morning. Thank you for being here. Ben and company, thank you for leading us. Kevin, thank you so much for your prayers. Um, I want to welcome those who are online as well. Thank you for joining us on Facebook Live and other platforms later on. Uh, some of you know already that I um, grew up in the Caribbean. Some do not know that. But I, I want to take you back to when I was like five, six, eight, ten years old. As a kid, I remember going with my parents to what I, um, I'm going to call Oyston's Fish Market. Some of you have actually been there because we went on a missions trip there as a church. But if you can get on your best Caribbean uh, mindset for a minute, if you can imagine when we go to this fish market right by the sea, there's all kinds of wooden um, fishing boats that are multicolored and beautiful, and you can smell the salt uh, water coming on you, the, the breeze of the northeast trade winds of the island are cutting across your hair if you have any, right? And then you go into the fish market, you smell and see the fresh fish being cut up and you hear the what I'm going to refer to as a Jamaican dialect, although it's what I would call a Bayesian dialect. And you see the, the fish out in front of you in this, this market. And this was my experience when I would go with my mom grocery shopping, <laughs> just like Walmart, right? And so we'd go and we'd pick up by we, I mean, mostly her and I would just stand around, but she would take me along and we'd go pick up um, fish for the week. And it was very normal for me as a kid growing up to have fish regularly. I would have flying fish. I would have what we call dolphin. It wasn't dolphin, dolphin, like you think of dolphin, because that's mean to eat those nice creatures. So it's actually mahi, mahi, right? And that's okay to eat that, but we don't want to eat the nice creatures, right? And so we would eat that regularly, and it would be no problem, and it would actually be an incredible thing, because we would be fresh, because, you know, we're in the Caribbean. So fish was never a problem for me in my history of growing up at all. Now, the reason I tell you that is to tell you this, when we came back from Barbados one time, when I was, I think, 13 years old, that's when I came back, um, we went up to my uh, aunt's house in Connecticut, and she had seafood, and I thought, well, this would be awesome. The only problem was I hadn't eaten this kind of seafood before. What she had was shrimp, and I had never eaten shrimp before, because that doesn't hop out of the water. We don't catch that in the, the Caribbean very easily. So I'm like, this tastes really good. And so I had one, then two, and then six, and then, I don't know, probably 12, maybe 15. I don't know how many I had. Well, then I realized that I'm allergic to shrimp. <laughs> yeah. So that was a neat day for me, right? And so then what happened, my allergic reaction was to get hives everywhere. And I was just lit up like a Christmas tree, terribly uncomfortable. Had like a 40-minute drive back to our place where we were staying, leaving my aunt's house. And I just was like, oh, what's going on? And everywhere. It was terrible. And we didn't know what in the world was happening. And then I realized I can't eat all seafood, <laughs> only some seafood. I can't eat shellfish. Well, even though, so I've had a couple of run-ins with seafood along the way, with shellfish in particular. And believe it or not, my in-laws tried to kill me one day when I was at their house. My, my mother-in-law put in scallops in the microwave, I believe. Now, when you have a husband who's an electrician and chooses not to vent the microwave outside but inside the house, then when you microwave scallops and that stuff comes into the kitchen area and you happen to be highly allergic, when it gets into your eye membranes or whatever, you end up having an allergic reaction. And so I almost died at the hands of my in-laws the other year. That same thing happened when I was a short order cook in the area when I was younger and in high school. And that's a story I want to tell you because I was cooking a crab cake sandwich, I believe, and something got in the air and got into my eye, and I got what I felt like was a hive on my eyeball. 
Now, isn't that neat? Now, what ended up happening is I had to go to the doctor. Now, it wasn't just me going to my car to go to the doctor. I had to contact the boss who had to take this like 15-year-old kid who smelled like a French fry. Maybe I was 16, I don't know. But I couldn't see to drive anyway, and my eyes were all messed up. Bloodshot, watering. I mean, I, it was, you just looked at me, you're like, what's wrong with this kid? Something bad happened. Well, I have to get in smelling like a French fry with my apron on to my boss man's really nice car, and he's wearing a, like a suit and tie. I already feel really awkward because he's in charge, right, and I'm not. And so we have a, a long, awkward 20-minute drive to the doctor. He doesn't want to go, doesn't want to take me, and I can tell, and I don't want to be with him in the car, but I have to because my eyes are about to fall out. So I go to the doctor, and I'm sitting there waiting for the doctor, and we sit together awkwardly in the waiting room. And finally, we see the doctor in the back room. The doctor, I sit down in the on the table, and the doctor pulls up a stool, like, right up to me. He looks me in the eye, and he's like, so what brings you in here today? And I'm like, I'm looking for a doctor. Can you find another one, please? And I remember that moment like it was yesterday. I'm like, are you serious? Like, you're, you're asking me what, you're looking at me in the eyeball, and you're asking me why in the world I'm here. Listen, my friend. <laughs> And I remember that because we've all had these experiences, I think, of engaging with people who are physically present but are actually absent. Have you had that experience? Of people who you wish were right there with you, who were, should be present in the moment with you, who should be able to see what's going on and, and not miss the fact that your eyeball's about to fall out if you're sitting in front of them as a doctor, but just isn't present, just isn't there. You've had that experience maybe with a coach, with a teacher, maybe with a parent, maybe with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a roommate, spouse. But here's what I want to turn that to. I want to ask this question, and that is this. Have you ever felt that way, like I have, about your own faith? Here's what I mean. Have you ever felt like my faith isn't actually present right now? The thing that I'm facing, the struggle, the challenge, the uncertainty, the difficulty that I'm looking at, my, I wish my faith were here, but it's not. Sometimes I might describe my faith this way. It's good enough for heaven, but not always for earth. It's good enough. I got a faith, and maybe you do. I don't know if you do share this or not, but I'll share my faith. I have a faith that says that there's a God in heaven who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to save me from my sin so that in my future I will have an eternal home and relationship with a loving heavenly father who knows and sees me. But today, <laughs> you think I can trust him to handle the financial worries that I have? I don't think so, but I can trust him in the future for heaven. Today? Can I trust them to untangle the relational mess of a family or work situation? Not sure, but I can trust them for the future. Sometimes I feel like I can describe my faith the way that that doctor actually treated me in that room. He had qualifications. He knew his stuff, but in the moment, he was absent. And sometimes, if I'm honest with you, sometimes my faith is like this. It's good enough for heaven, but not always for earth. Not always for earth, not always for the stuff in the day-to-day -day that wears me out. And I don't know if you can relate to that, but there is a man who can. And that's a story that I want to tell you this morning. In this series we're in called Stronger, I want to invite you 
not just to a stronger faith or not just to be a stronger person, but I want to invite you to see a stronger God during this season. And I'm using the story of the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament to help us see and to tell that story. And so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. If you don't know where that is, it's not a problem. You can find the Psalms kind of in the middle of your Bible and then back up a little bit or just find it on your app. There's also a Bible in the chair near you. That's our gift to you if you don't own one. Um, but I want to invite you to go to Nehemiah because what Nehemiah does for us today is he says this, and here's my, here's my main point. Um, I don't have anything that rhymes today. I don't even have anything super short today. I just have this as honest as I can be today. And then you can hopefully, you can decide today, as you always get to decide, if where I take you in the scripture supports and nails down this point and whether you want to engage it or not. But here's what I believe Nehemiah teaches us today. And that is this, that God actually still does unlikely things and uses people who haven't given up faith to help pull them off. That I believe that God still does unlikely things, that he is still present, not just future, but that God still is present to do unlikely things and that he uses people who haven't given up faith to help pull off those highly unlikely things. That is a story that I think we're going to see as we get into Nehemiah's story. So if you're in Nehemiah, I want to go to chapter 2 of Nehemiah, beginning at verse 1. Now, as we begin in verse 1, I just want to tell you to open up the scene. You need to imagine, if you got with me in the Caribbean at all, I need to take you back to Persia and to the reputation of a king with the kind of power that this king has. He's about to throw a party, and he's going to throw a party. This is a scene, as we open up in verse 1, that in the month of, as it says here, in the month of Nisan, which is not a car, but a month, in the, tw in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been in his presence before. This language um, about bringing the wine to a king and what we, what we read later about the queen being next to him is a, a traditional, typical setup in the ancient Near East where there is a party upon party upon party, days, sometimes weeks, of the finest of the fine being brought to the king, and everyone has a delightful time. Many of them can't remember what they did, but that doesn't matter. They all have a great time. And so, as Nehemiah has said, he, I, have, I had not been, he said at the end of verse 1, I had not been sad in his presence before. So that's an important thing because for the sake of timing, for those who remember the story of Nehemiah, it has now been four months since Nehemiah has been introduced to the main problem, and that is that the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. And now it's four months later. And so in those four months, if you've been with us in this series, you know this, and if not, I'll just bring you up to speed quick. In those four months, what Nehemiah has been doing, the best of our understanding, is a daily I'll at least say regular. My understanding is a daily prayer to God. As we read, he's been weeping, he's been kneeling, he's been routinely coming with the depth of his soul daily to God, asking for direction about what should be done because the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down and have not been repaired for about, at this point, about 70 years since the temple has been rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem have still been broken down. 
And so Nehemiah now for these four months has been keeping all of this kind of in. He's been going to God with it. He has not yet talked to the king. And at some point, you can't keep all of that angst in. When life isn't quite right, and you know this, it's at some point your demeanor is impacted by the weight that you bear, and that is what Nehemiah is dealing with. And so the king asked me, verse 2, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And we see at the end of verse 2, Nehemiah's immediate reaction is, I was very much afraid. Now let's pause here in verse 2. This is very important. <laughs> The funny part about this verse too is that the translation of what the king says can actually be translated. The king says, why does your faith face look so bad? And I guess if you're a king, you can get away with that. I wouldn't recommend it for any of the rest of us. Why does your face, face look so bad? And he's very much afraid. And I don't know quite what he's afraid of. I think part of it is he's afraid of what he's going to say next. But I think he also knows that what hangs in the balance is his very life right now. Because he knows what maybe we haven't quite apprehended yet, that the thing that has been on his heart is a thing that is so deep that it's going to need an act of God for him to be able to navigate this without losing his life. And the reason for that is because this king, just a few years ago, had written a decree that has become incredibly significant in the political, social, and economic history of Persia and of Jerusalem. So what I want to do, and what I wish I could do in real life, is if you ever watch those movies or those TV shows where they have you in the present, and then they pause it, and then they have a little bit of, and they take you, now we're 20 years earlier, and then you get the background story. Imagine me doing that in some creative way right now. We're going to go back about four years, because about four years prior, I want to pause this moment where Nehemiah is being asked what's going on. Pause it. Right? Four years later. And I want you to turn with me. Keep your finger in Nehemiah or whatever you need to do. Turn with me to Ezra. Just go backwards a book. Ezra chapter 4. Now, now, four years earlier, the scene opens up again. In Ezra chapter 4, we need this to understand the power of the moment that Nehemiah is in. Ezra chapter 4, verse 11, verse 12, excuse me. We have people who are in and around Jerusalem who are seeing an attempt to rebuild the wall. And here's what they say in verse 12. They're giving a report to, to the king, to this king. And they're, they're saying this. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are restoring the walls and repairing the foundations. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes, tribute, or duty will be paid, and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it's not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king so that a search may be made in the archives of your predecessors. And in these records, you'll find that this city is a rebellious city, troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. And that is why this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is built and its walls are restored, you will be left with nothing in trans-Euphrates. Wasn't that nice of them? inform the king. And what they're saying is, king, if you allow these people who years ago were trying to rebuild the wall, if you allow them to continue this wicked and rebellious city, 
is going to rise up again. They will someday threaten your power, right? Immediately, you're going to get no money. Taxes are gone and everything. To which the king, verse 17, this king, who just asked Nehemiah this question, sent this reply, verse 17, to Rahim, this commanding officer, Shimshai, the secretary, and the rest of their associates living in Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. Greetings. The letter you sent us has been read and translated in my presence. I issued an order and a search was made. And it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole of trans-Euphrates and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of the royal interests? <laughs> ah, the result, verse 23. So as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rahim and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. Thus, the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of, king Dari of Darius, king of Persia. Now, can you imagine what it would take for a ruler of a nation to have his decree overturned? Can you imagine not just what it would take to have it be overturned, but can you imagine what it would take for that very ruler to overturn his own decree just a few years later? And so as we fast forward back to Nehemiah chapter 2, which is where you can go back in your Bible too. What Nehemiah knows is when he's asked the question, hey, what's wrong, my friend? Like, you have sadness of heart. But he knows for months, for four months, he's been praying about how to get the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. He knows what he's going against. Highly unlikely odds that the king who just decreed that this should stop because this is a wicked and rebellious and seditious city. This is a place where if they rebuild, we're not getting any taxes. There'll be a future threat. It is not in, in his words, it is not in the royal interests that this city should be rebuilt. A highly unlikely scenario. And so Nehemiah is all of a sudden compelled, and he's at the crossroads in this moment before the king in a big party where everyone else is happy and feasting, and he is not. And he has to confront a king's decree, and what hangs in the balance is his life. Because you don't go against the king's decree. You don't say to the king, oh king, your decree of a few years ago is maybe a little misaligned, and we think you should rebuild Jerusalem. Maybe... It doesn't work that way. The king's power and strength is too much. And so this is an incredibly uh, complex moment for Nehemiah, which explains why he's so afraid, even though he has so much power in the kingdom, which is why his words next are chosen very carefully. He says, verse 3 of chapter 2, back to the present day, if you will. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Good way to start. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Notice he didn't mention Jerusalem. He didn't use the word because I think, and I think it was too political a word. I think it was too um, much of a touch point. If he says that immediately, he's going to know. He's going to put the king in a difficult position. So the king said to me, all right, what is it that you actually want? Give me, give me something to respond to. Give me a recommendation, Nehemiah. And then we see one of these incredible 
whisper prayers, if you will, where you have just a half second to decide what to say or do, and Nehemiah takes that half second to pray, and he says, and I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, and I want you to know, and here's what I believe, I can't prove it in the scriptures, but here's what I believe, I believe that breath prayer was built on four months of prayer, <laughs> not just a, let me come up with a plan on the fly right now, but that I believe that Nehemiah for months, in the four months that elapsed from hearing about it until now, that he has been, I might say, in a, I'll say daydreaming about this, that he's been wondering and imagining because he's a leader. What could be? Maybe even what should be. There's something that's wrong, and we haven't been able to fix it yet, and it's on my heart, and I don't know how to fix it. Well, here's what it would take. It would take this much lumber. It would take this much approval. It would take this much time. It would take, it would take, it would take, it would take, and you would begin to put together almost a plan of what would possibly happen in the best case scenario in the entire world. And so he whispers a prayer, and then at the end, and then verse five, he says, and I answered the king, and he comes with a very specific request. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Again, he still doesn't name Jerusalem. And then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, and so I set a time. Just so you know, Nehemiah doesn't record it here how long it is, but in chapter 5 of Nehemiah, we learned that the time that he set, how long, how long are you, would you be comfortable asking your boss for time off in a situation like this? Okay, I, I'm going to need some time off. Nehemiah asks for 12 years. You wonder why he was afraid? <laughs> Not only am I going to go against your decree, but I'm going to need about 12 years to do this, if you don't mind holding my position for me while I'm gone. And that's what he does. And that's what the king agrees on. It goes on, verse 7. I also said to him, while I'm talking, may as well put the whole thing in front of him. If it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? Because he knows that this decree in Ezra we just read is still in existence. If he goes, he's going to be threatened. He's going to be shown letters from the king that says, you can't be here. He's like, I need letters. I need approval from you to overturn the approval that you gave just a few years ago. If you don't mind reversing yourself quick and sending me some letters, that would be helpful. Oh, and also verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of, you know, your force, the king's force, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I'm going to occupy, if you don't mind me asking. I love the end of verse 8. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. This is crazy. God using a Persian king to rebuild his city. God using someone who doesn't even claim to be a, a follower of Yahweh at this time or a follower of God at this time to use all of his resources to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then it gets even better. Verse 9. And so I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. Oh, and the king also, at the end of verse 9, had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. <laughs> Isn't that great? So here's Nehemiah. Um, I need to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. I have a couple of problems. One, I have no resources, I have no authority, and the king, whom I serve, has already said just a few years ago that no one should ever rebuild that city. So I just need to ask you, king, can you reverse yourself and give me all the resources I need and provide me a military escort to make it happen? 12 years off, I also need 12 years off, do you mind? To which the king says, 
Sure. Why not? Why not, Nehemiah? And here's why, to me, this matters. Because God isn't just a God in his covenant with his people who sits in heaven and says, I, I will love you sometime in the future. In fact, the reason that this is happening is because God has already said to Nehemiah and through the Mosaic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant that if my people are scattered to the far sides of the earth, I will bring them back when they return to me. That I want to be present with the people in their lives. I want to be present with them as they live. I want to be in their midst and together with them. That faith from God, a heavenly father, is a present faith, not just an eternal, someday later in the future, hope, but actually a very present day faith. Which makes me ask a couple of questions. As I think about Nehemiah's story, I think about where I'm at. And I have three questions that I want to wrap up with, and I want to encourage you to think about if any one of these might be a question that you might want to ask and spend some more time on. Here's the first question, and it's this. What are God's purposes that I can align with? What are God's purposes that I can align with? Last week, we talked about this alignment piece, how Nehemiah aligned himself as a servant, almost like that nail in the piece of wood, and that God was the hammer. There's probably a better imagery for this, but that when you're aligned to that hammer and the force comes, you sink right down into the wood and you do your job and you accomplish the purpose of the hammer, which is to drive the nail in. So Nehemiah aligned himself with the purpose of God and said, God, your purpose is to bring people from all over the earth back together again when we return to you. God, we want to return to you. Help me help you make it happen. Let me get in alignment with you. In the new covenant, which is what Christians today are in, we are under a covenant of love. This is what Christ said in the New Testament. And so when I read that, when I see that, I begin to ask the question, how can I align with this command to love God and to love my neighbor as myself? I go with regularity to passages like Luke 4, where Jesus, and I mentioned this last week, where Jesus in his first message talks about how he's come to bring the year of Jubilee to people. He's come to heal the sick, to bring sight to the blind, to free the prisoner, to take care of the oppressed. And I begin to ask the question in my own daily life, how can I align with the purpose of freedom, of justice, of sight, of healing for the people whom Christ has come for? It's a matter of alignment. Not just that I'm here for my family or for an economic bottom line or for a future reputation, but that I'm here to align with the purpose of God as revealed in Christ specifically. What does it look like to love very specifically? So what can I align with? Second question is this, what seems highly unlikely that I could pray about? I love Nehemiah spending four months just working this over before he goes to God. And I don't know about you, but my experience, and part of the reason why my faith sometimes I describe as good enough for heaven, but not always for earth, is that I sometimes lose faith that God can work in people around me, in systems around me, in culture around me, in organizations around me, in government around me. I sometimes lose faith. I think those things are too big. And what Nehemiah does is he looks for those things and he's like, yeah, you know what? That's pretty big. So I'm going to spend four months praying about it. And if given the opportunity, I will have daydreamed, I will have planned, I will have worked this through with God to say, here's what I would do if the opportunity presents itself. Here's what I would love to see happen. I know it's impossible. It seems impossible that my family will ever reconcile. It seems impossible that our culture will ever recover from this. It seems impossible that our government will ever stop doing that and start doing this. It seems impossible that our community can ever heal from this and move forward over here. It seems impossible. But it's on my heart. And if I'm aligned with a God who wants me to love, I'm going to process, what does that mean for me to align with God and love well? 
Which leads me to this last question. And every day in Barbados, at school, believe it or not, we had to pray the Lord's Prayer. Some of you have done that before, some haven't. It was a public school, but we'd pray, you know, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Some of you know that. And in that prayer, beautiful prayer, in that prayer begins, we begin to think about the question of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Which leads me to this question, that is this. Where can I bring God's will to bear on earth as it is in heaven? Where can I bring God's will to bear on earth as it is in heaven? Let me just give you this little example quick. Uh, we're going to learn more about this. Uh, we'll share more about this later on as we develop it even more. But we are right now in our very community looking at some of the root causes of poverty that exist with the people around us. And many of you know that we're involved in partnerships with the school, with our um, social service providers, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things we realize is that the third grade reading level is a key metric for predicting poverty going forward. In other words, if there's a child who's in poverty and not reading adequately by the end of third grade, they are 12 times more likely not to finish high school than their peer who is reading at an adequate reading level and in middle class at least. When we look at these metrics, we realize that we have only 60% of the kids in our community who are at grade reading level. And so we're trying to address in our community, say, you know what, I don't know how in the world you move that from here up to 90%, but that's what we'd like to do in five years. We'd like to look at that, and it's maybe a little bit of a rebuilding the wall situation. We realize it's so complicated because it has to do with housing problems. We have inadequate housing in our community. It has to do with rural transportation problems. People can't get rides to doctor's offices, et cetera. It has to do with economic and workforce development, people, people being able to find and keep jobs that pay a sustainable living wage. It's incredibly complex and nuanced, but we're looking at it and saying, you know what, what is one way that we can love our neighbors well, that we can align with the purpose of God, not just generally to love people and be nice, but specifically to bring faith to bear, to look at our community in the eye and say, I think there's something wrong. How can we help? I think there's something wrong, and how can we help? To, to kind of get on board with this principle that I shared at the beginning, that God still does unlikely things and uses people who haven't given up faith to help pull them off. Because what I want, and I think what you want, is if you ever have a kid who's 15 years old sitting in front of you, whose eyeball's about to fall out because he had crab cake, whatever, stuck in his eye from cooking that sandwich for you. If you're the doctor sitting there looking at that kid, I hope that you, and I hope that me, I hope for me, that I don't ask the question, what is even going on? But that I see the pain and I understand even as I walk into the room, this is a problem. I understand it. I see it because I'm present. Christians, Christians don't just have hope, by the way. Christians don't just have hope. I hope, I hope you understand the difference between hope and faith. Hope is just a, a wish or a dream that sometimes in the future something might work out. Faith is belief in an object of something. So Christians have faith in the object of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, and the reason this matters to Christians is Jesus Christ has been incarnated. He has come from heaven to earth so that we have a place to place our faith. And as a model says to all of us, may your faith, not just your hope, but may your faith, Christian, be incarnated in the world around you. So that if you are Nehemiah, you don't just pray that God will one day heal your land and go back to bed. You pray for that, but then you ask, how can my faith be made real within the people with whom I am living with right now? 
within my family, within my children, within my school, within my community? How can I take this idea of a faith in a God in heaven and God use me to align, to love people intentionally, even in the places that seem highly, highly unlikely right now? That was Nehemiah's moment when the king said, what's wrong? If it pleases the king, and may you live forever, here's what I would love to see. To which the king, in the most highly unlikely of circumstances, reversed himself, gave him everything he needed and more, and accomplished the purposes of God through a servant who was willing to do it. And so, my friends, I believe this is true. That God still does unlikely things. And he uses people like you. Maybe some days, on my better days, people like me, who won't give up faith, that our faith isn't meant to be just good enough for heaven, but also good enough for earth. So let me encourage you. Look the people in the eye near you and don't miss, don't miss what you see. Be present. Be present with the people around you. Next week, part five of Stronger. We'd love to have you back for that. Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here and to pause in the story, to step into the story of Nehemiah again and to see a faith and a historic Christian faith that isn't just good enough for heaven but is very present in earth. We thank you for not being a God who has stayed in heaven and just declared that we're saved, that we're healed, but that sent his son to this earth to be present with us. And so I pray that you would help us to love not just in principle or idea. You'd help us not just to be satisfied with being nice and generally friendly people, but that you would help us to see, to look in the eyes of the children around us, of the parents, families that we work with, that we live with, and to see the pain, to see the hurt, and to ask, how can I align with the purpose of God to love all people at all time. Give us the courage and the wisdom, I pray, to align ourselves with your eternal purpose to redeem and offer hope and healing for all. We love you, Father. We thank you for the time we have and pray that you give us the courage to do what we need to do, freedom and wisdom to look at one another and be present because you are present with us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.